Hello everybody, this is Mario Zapata. I'm coming back to you with another episode of the MMA Fresh Take Podcast. We'll get into a few things that have been leading the news headlines here of late in the world of mixed martial arts. We'll touch on Conor McGregor, Tony Ferguson, and Habib Nurmagomedov and the triangle that has formed there in the UFC lightweight division for the lightweight title. We'll talk about Chris Cyborg and what's next for her. Is it Megan Anderson? Is it... um, Amanda Nunes, or is it someone else? Also, we'll talk a little bit about the Jeff Nowitzki appearance on Joe Rogan. Talk a little bit about what he talked about uh, regarding John Jones and Nick Diaz and where they stand in the USADA uh, protocol right now, as well as we'll talk a little bit more about Justin Gaethje and Kevin Lee and anything else that may come up. Perhaps we can we may touch on it at the end if we have time. So let's get right into it. Let's talk about Conor McGregor versus um, Tony Ferguson or Habib Nurmagomedov. Dana White was recently interviewed by Kevin Ioli, I believe, yesterday on this on January third, in a video interview. It was very interesting. It was a, a good interview to see where Dana's head was at about a few things, including the state of his boxing uh, that he's trying to implement for Zufa boxing. So let's get into that. Um, Dana White was saying that there is a possibility that if Conor is going to wait too long, they would have to strip Conor McGregor of the title belt, in which case they would make a Tony Ferguson versus Habib Nurmagomedov fight happen for the undisputed title. He did also say, though, that if Conor was willing to fight, it was a little bit confusing. He said something about if Conor was willing to fight in March. I think what he was trying to say is that Potentially, if Connor is willing to fight by March, maybe they do the Tony Ferguson versus uh, Connor Connor McGregor fight for the to unify the titles. But perhaps that as long as Connor would be willing to fight by August, then they could definitely do the uh, they definitely would allow him to hang on to the titles any further than that. If he starts to go into fall, it would be a little bit tough for them considering that they would be approaching two years' time since the time he won his title. And due to his inactivity, considering that he's been healthy this whole time, he's even competed in boxing, he's just not been willing to fight. And for whatever reasons those are, whether it be money reasons or something else, um, it doesn't really matter. They would probably have to strip him, in which case, again, they would have to put Tony Ferguson versus Habib Nurmagomedov in for the title picture. Either way, here's how I see this whole thing going. I said it in the last podcast, I definitely want to see who is the best 150-pound lightweight in the world at the UFC level. And in my case, that's the highest level. So who is the best lightweight in the world? Is it Habib Nurmagomedov? Is it Tony Ferguson? Or is it Conor McGregor? I believe that we will find that answer out this year. One way or another. I'm not exactly sure how it will go. But this is what I would like to see. And this is what I think will will happen. I do believe that Habib versus Tony will happen sometime in March or April. And that fight will go on. And it will take place for the interim title, uh, for the interim championship. Once that fight happens, whoever wins that will be go on to face Connor, perhaps in August, perhaps um perhaps in September, depending on who wins. So if Habib wins, it may take a little bit longer because of his fasting that he does in the summertime, which does make it difficult for him to prepare for training and prepare for a fight. So that could delay a potential McGregor fight by just a little bit longer than would a Tony Ferguson win, which possibly he could turn around and fight in July or early August. So those are the two. Those are the scenarios that I would like to see happen. I do believe it will happen. There's been some talk that Connor has been holding out for some more money. That there have slow con- uh, contract negotiations. Dana White said that he felt pretty good about those contract negotiations. So it probably lies somewhere in the middle there. But I do believe that at the end of the day, there has been, even when there has been a little bit of friction between the UFC and Connor, they've always found a way to get deals done, even if it comes at the last minute. It does happen. So 
in, in saying that and knowing that, I do have confidence that this will happen. But let's just say that Connor decides, you know what, the money isn't good enough for me. Let's just say that he feels like, I don't really feel like fighting until December. If that's the case, they absolutely must strip Conor McGregor of the title. I have been a very long supporter for Conor McGregor. I think he's an incredible fighter, has had a huge, huge, massive impact on the sport, and I think he's been great for the UFC. I think he's been great for fighters to help teach these guys that they can really grab the career themselves and really run with it however they want and really take it in the direction that they feel is best by just putting in the effort themselves. They don't always have to rely on the UFC. The UFC does help, but you yourself, if you're smart enough, if you've got a good team around you, can very much promote yourself and gain popularity yourself in order to make you more successful financially as long as you continue to win the way that Connor has been able to do. But in saying that, you just cannot hold the title for two years without defending even one time. He's never defended the title one time, not at featherweight, not at lightweight. You just can't do that. So if he does hold that title and is unwilling to fight by, let's say, August or September, I do believe they have to strip it at some point in time, just like Dana White alluded to. You know, time is everything for these guys. They don't have a lot of it in this type of sport. In this sport, you get in, you get out, and you hopefully take with you a decent amount of money, enough for you to make a good living for at least a few years, if not for the rest of your life, if you're lucky. If you're lucky, right? So a lot of this for these guys is they truly want to become champions. They truly want to build a legacy and say, I was the best champion. I was the best 155-pound 155 fighter in the world at this point in time and have that legacy because more than likely in this sport, you're not going to make life-changing money to where you can rely on that for the rest of your life, where you can provide your family with that for the rest of your life. There's only a few people that have been able to succeed in that. Maybe a Ronda Rousey, maybe a Brock Lesnar, and then obviously, definitely a Conor McGregor, right? Perhaps George St. Pierre and some of these other guys. Not very many names. That's that that list right there fits on one hand alone. So for Tony and Habib, this is everything for them. Also, them winning a title would mean a hell of a lot, especially financially for them. This could put them in a whole new position in being able to elevate their careers and become the man and have the opportunities that the UFC give to other champions have that opportunity on top of the ones that they make for themselves and be able to capitalize on that financially and, and career-wise. So I do. I would say if Connor's not willing to fight again by August, very early September at the latest, they do have to strip him. It's definitely understandable. You can't have a healthy champion not fight for two years just because he wanted to go fight a boxing match, which made him in excess of $100 million, and then is holding out for more money uh, in his return fight. At this point, I do believe the money is going to be, the money and pure competition for Connor is more important than the actual belt because he's already accomplished what he wanted to do with the belt. He's never come off as one of these guys that has ever talked about breaking Anderson Silva's record. What did he want to do with the belts? He wanted to gain the featherweight title. He wanted to gain the lightweight title. And he wanted to do it at the same time. He did that. He made history. He was the third ever person to ever have a championship in two different weight classes. The first one to ever hold two championships simultaneously. So he has done that. At this point, if the championship is not as important to him as some of these other guys, then you've got to give them the opportunity to fight. Otherwise, if he wants to fight before then, then all power to him in that case. And I don't have a huge issue with Tony Ferguson and, Con and Habib Nurmagomedov having to fight before they fight uh, Conor for the undisputed title. The reason why is because I just think that that is such a great matchup. I think it's something in which um, we, the fans would love to see. That's been a fight that has been a long time coming. I think it would be an incredible build. 
whoever wins that fight would have a ton of momentum going into the Conor fight and would absolutely be on some sort of star level, in my opinion, because they would have all the attention on them in a potential main event slot for a pay-per-view. I think they do main event, and I think that would be an incredible fight, especially if Habib ends up winning. I think that, that you can then turn that Conor McGregor-Habib fight into a mega, mega uh, you know, money fight right there. And it would also be um, very much a competitive fight in, in terms of the sport itself. So that would be great. Um, but until then, we'll see what, what happens. Very interested to see how these negotiations go. I think that that's the key to everything at this point in time. If they're not going positively for the UFC, you should expect that the UFC will more than likely uh, you know, strip Connor of the title. But my opinion is, is that I do believe that they'll have the ability to find, figure a way out to satisfy both sides, and, and they'll get this done in, in, in time for, for Tony to fight Habib and then the winner to fight Conor for the Undisputed Championship. So let's move on to from the biggest name in the, on the male side of the sport to the biggest name in the female side of the sport in Chris Cyborg. So let's talk about her for a little bit. So this is a very interesting conversation that's been going on here of recently, immediately after the fight in which she defeated Holly Holm this past weekend and defended her title for the very first time. She went on to say that she did, was not interested, again, that she was not interested in, the, in fighting Amanda Nunes because she's a fellow Brazilian um, for the next title shot. Um, she would be more interested in fighting Megan Anderson. So she actually posted on, on Instagram that she got a call from the UFC and she accepted a fight with Megan Anderson to fight in Australia here in about six weeks. So this kind of got everybody in a little bit of a frenzy. Was this fight made? Was it not made? Well, and all, from all accounts, Megan Anderson then came out and said, this fight hasn't been made. She didn't realize that you could... <laughs> She didn't realize you could accept the fight without it having even been offered. So it looks like this was a little bit of a leverage play from Chris Cyborg. Dana White also said that he did not propose the fight to Chris Cyborg for Megan Anderson. So it looks like that Cyborg was um, trying to put leverage and put it out there into the, um, the media space to see what type of reaction it would get and hopefully force her hand enforce uh, Meg, me and Anderson's hand and UFC's hands at actually putting this fight together. But this fight is not happening. Apparently, according to Dana White, the fight he does want to see happen is Amanda Nunes versus Chris Cyborg. Amanda Nunes, according to him, wants this fight. He made some very interesting comments, and I do agree with him in the fact that Amanda Nunes is a big, strong, powerful puncher, and he thinks that she matches up very well with Cyborg as well. I do believe that as well. Obviously, Amanda is, is still going to be smaller from a strength aspect. She's probably going to have a little bit less power than Cyborg does in her in her boxing. But I will say after watching that Holly Holm fight, who's to say that Amanda Nunes couldn't match that type of power in the clinch against a Chris Cyborg? So that would be an extremely intriguing matchup. So after this came out, Chris Cyborg then rebutted this as well and said, I do not want to fight Amanda Nunes. I do not want to super fight against the 135-pound champion. She wants Amanda Nunes, if she would like to fight at 145, to fight a contender first at 145, and then she would be eligible to fight Chris Cyborg for the 145-pound championship. Or she would like to fight Megan Anderson at this point, and if she doesn't get the fight with Megan Anderson, she would like to go on to be matched up with another Invicta contender, and she named someone in particular named Pam Sorensen. So let's just talk about this for a little bit. Let's digest this. I'm not a big fan of hearing fighters go, I don't want to fight someone because they're from England, and I'm from England. That doesn't really matter to me. And, and that may sound cynical, but who cares? Like, if you're from Brazil and you're from Brazil, that doesn't matter. So you're not going to play soccer against someone because they're from Brazil. That doesn't make sense to me. You're not going to, you know, really put the 
biggest fight you could put together and, you know, financially do the best in because you are both from Brazil, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense career-wise, financially. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense competitively, in my opinion. And apparently Amanda Nunes is wanting this fight. So if the other person doesn't really want, doesn't really consider the fact that the other woman is a fellow countryman and doesn't have a problem with it, then why should the other one? I mean, this isn't a real issue that you have like in the States. It's not an issue you have like in the UK or anything like that. For some reason, and maybe just this speaks to how strong the culture is in Brazil. And if that's the case, then all power to them. But it seems like this is often a problem in a Brazil. And I will admit that the Brazilian crowd, when having two Brazilians face against each other, it hasn't always been the most popular thing. It's almost been a little bit awkward if they do fight in Brazil. So maybe you just don't do the fight in Brazil. Maybe you do it in the States would be my uh, suggestion for that. So, again, this just does not make a lot of sense to me. I do commend Cyborg for also saying that she wants to grow this division. She feels that she has an obligation to see that this division grows and that the contenders that work at 145 actually get their chances and get what they deserve. But here's what I would say to that. They, the UFC only has two 145-pounders signed to their to their organization. That's that's not Holly Holm. Holly Holm is actually going to go back down to 135. You'll see that happening soon. But it's Chris Cyborg and Megan Anderson. Well, Megan Anderson currently is not ready to fight. So there is no 145-pound division, Cyborg. There's nothing to be grown yet. And that's not see, that's not your fault. But also, you cannot wish for something to happen that's not even a possibility at this point. If you're going to hold out for someone else at 145, I don't know how much luck you're going to have in that if the UFC has waited even this long to sign another 145-pound girl. That's just the reality of it. Um, that's not really something that is in her control. I commend her for wanting to actually have the, the division grow and really be strong. But... At the same time, I don't want to see Cyborg face Pam Sorensen. That's not someone that is going to be competitive with her. I just don't see that happening. There's a thing that we talk about in wrestling called squash matches. And usually it's to make the big, powerful, strong guy look indestructible. And they bring in this small, puny guy that's definitely going to lose, has very little athleticism. And the big, strong, powerful guy rips through him in 30 seconds and wins. That's what Chris Cyborg's career has felt for the most part. Who really thought Marlos Kunin was going to beat Chris Cyborg? Not me. I mean, not a lot of people. The last person other than Holly Holm that really felt like, wow, this would be a huge test for Chris was um, Gina Carano. Ever since then, Cyborg's prime has really been wasted on squash matches. That's what I call them because you go in there saying, how fast is Chris going to end this fight? One round, one minute, one punch. Like, what is it going to be? And that does not make her feel important. It makes her feel indestructible. But how important is that when you're fighting these low-level fighters? I don't want to see her against low-level competition. So that's why I do believe that she needs to fight Amanda Nunes. I believe that at her age, she's already 32. People aren't really talking about that. But she is 32 years old. And... The fact is, is that she could go on to fight till 38 and make a lot more money. But the other reality is, is that sometimes these things fall off much quicker for other athletes. What if she falls off at 34? If that's the case, she's finally at a point where she's able to really gain financial gains in mixed martial arts. She's finally getting paid good money. She has a spotlight on her. And her goal should be to make the most money in the sport possible. As I said earlier with Tony and, and, and uh, Tony Ferguson and Habib Nurmagomedov, you only have so much time in this sport. You really have to absolutely capitalize in these situations. I would be all for Cyborg wanting to go the route of let me reign over to my division rather than do a super fight. If she was in a featherweight division like the men's side where there were true contenders waiting in the wings or the lightweight division, things of that nature. 
but that's not the case in her division. She doesn't have true contenders waiting in the wings. The only people that truly make sense for her is an Amanda Nunes, is a Megan Anderson. No one else makes even remotely sense for her. No 145-pound fighter in the world on the women's side makes any sense for Chris Cyborg. What have they done to proven that they would be even competitive against Chris Cyborg? That is my question to you, and that is my question to her. So at this time, at this point in time, you're 32. Who knows if this division will ever grow in the UFC, if this division will even be around when she leaves. You know, perhaps me and Anderson will be the one to really um, gain some traction for the 145-pound division after Chris Cyborg leaves. But again, there's not a 145-pound division in it for Cyborg. She shouldn't be focusing on that. I think that she should be focusing on the fights that will actually make her matter, that will actually make her feel important, that will actually give her some stability when it comes to her finances and really give her the best opportunity to make the make uh, the best of what she has remaining in her career. And she should be able to uh, take on those fights because those fights in which she takes on these low-level um, unknown ranked women they're just fights that don't really add to her legacy. The Holly Holm win adds to her legacy. The, the Gina Carano win was her legacy for the longest time, right? But if she were to go on to defeat an Amanda Nunes and a Megan Anderson, wow, that is incredible. Then you really start to build something very, very special. And you're really able to prove that not only with just your pure aggression, strength, and power were you a great fighter, but you ended up being a great fighter with your technique, with your strategy, with the way that you thought things out and, your, and, and everything else that came with it. The way that she was able to prove to people she wasn't just a brute this weekend. She's actually a very skilled mixed martial artist who has the ability to have a high IQ in the inside the octagon, able to counter strike. That's not really something that we saw a lot of prior to this. A lot of prior to this was just walking through punches and just dismantling people and really not showing a whole lot of more of her game. She really showed a lot this past week. I think she, she should go for more challenges like that in which she knows she can get a true fight. But again, I don't want to see her fighting a Pam Sorensen that no one's ever heard of. And that's no disrespect to Pam Sorensen. That's just the reality of this division. That's her, the state of mixed martial arts in the women's 145-pound weight division. So I do believe that even though it's not to her liking for Chris, that she will be in, she will end up fighting Amanda Nunes at 145 for the championship. I think it's an excellent matchup. I think with Nunes, the way that she strikes is, is mainly boxing. I feel that's very intriguing. She's pretty aggressive herself. It's very interesting to see the maturation process of both Cyborg and Nunes, who are both two people who would kind of fight the same way, hyper-aggressive, very much using their power and their strength over opponents, but later in their careers have really started to show their true technique, their patience, their ability to win fights with their IQ. That makes it very intriguing. Amanda Nunes would have by far the biggest power that Holly Holm, or that Chris Cyborg has faced in a long, long time. And she would also have the credentials to defend Cyborg's wrestling, to do very well on the ground with Cyborg, maybe even better than Cyborg. I mean, this would be a very intriguing matchup. And to put a 135-pound champion who doesn't really have a true contender waiting in the wings because Raquel Pennington is still recovering from that crash that she had, um, a few months ago, and then against the 145-pound division, who still doesn't have a true contender waiting no wings for her, because Megan Anderson, for whatever reason, is still on the sidelines. That, I do believe, is the perfect time for a super fight to happen, when there is not a clear champion. So in this case, I do believe that that fight should happen. I would love to see that fight happen in the summertime. I think it's the biggest fight that they can make on the women's side right now. And it would really do a lot and be a big opportunity for both women to make themselves even bigger stars, especially in the case of Amanda Nunes, who hasn't really garnered that star power that she was hoping to get from defeating Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey. But this would be an 
a very unique and uh, big opportunity for Amanda Nunes to say, look at me now. I defeated, not only did I defeat Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey, but I also defeated Chris Cyborg, arguably the three most popular, most famous women in the sport of mixed martial arts on the women's side in history. All right, so let's get on, move on from that. Um, the next thing to touch on was going to be that Jeff Nowitzki interview. So let's talk about this a little bit. You talked a little bit about Nick Diaz and John Jones. Let's first touch on the John Jones news that he came out with. It looks like he's indicating that from his viewpoint, it looks like that John Jones unintentionally took this, failed this drug test unknowingly. In the, so let me just clean that up a little bit. Basically, in his opinion, obviously John Jones failed the drug test, didn't know about it, right? But he's saying that he doesn't think that it was his intention to cheat. So he said that it, it, he said, quote, I think it's come out after the fact that USADA did another test on John a month or two months after his positive test and he was negative. So that would be indicative that the prohibited substance entered the system sometime after July 7th or 8th. And that was likely a pretty small amount and that cleared his system pretty quickly. Again, who knows? where it plays out, but on the surface of things, at this point in the game, with what type of information out there, it would indicate intentional. It wouldn't indicate intentional use. This could be wrong, but I know that def definitively, and we'll see how this plays out. I don't know that definitively, and we'll see how this plays out. He also clarified that he's not ultimately the deciding factor in uh, John Jones's USADA case, he's actually not even playing a factor at all in this case. So Jeff Nowitzki actually works for the UFC, and he works to help the the fighters understand what the USADA pro testing is, what the program's about, to really help implement that program for the fighters and help them along with any questions or issues they may have. So he's the one that gets contacted by USADA whenever someone has failed a drug test. And then he goes on to notify, you know, UFC president Dana White. And he can kind of work with the fighters and USADA with his experience having been in the, you know, anti-doping, um, you know, business before many, many years uh, before he's been in the UFC. So that's very, that's very key to know. But I will say this. It's very interesting that he decided to come out and speak on the fact that he does believe that from the information that's gone out there, he doesn't think it would make a lot of sense for an individual like John to know that he was being regularly tested and still try to cheat. So he's taken a little bit of the evidence and trying to say that it just doesn't make sense. There could be a drug that was tainted and it looks like John did not intentionally use this, considering the fact that he had some clean drug tests, you know, pretty soon before and pretty soon after the facts of his failed drug test. So what does this mean? Ultimately, it doesn't mean a whole lot. A lot of people are going to see this and say, oh, wow, so John did not use intentionally. That's not what this means. This is Jeff Nowitzki's opinion. He's not at all part of the decision-making process and what John Jones will get as his punishment for this um, violation. And he did mention that this is this type of um, this type of violation usually starts at four years with mitigating circumstances. It could be it could be you know lowered to something else. He doesn't know what that is, but also in a case where John were to be lying and really two-faced about this or, or just really hiding things from USADA, it could even double as much as eight years, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot that is left unknown at this point in time. Apparently, John has met recently with USADA. Apparently, that meeting did go very well. Um, I would say the fact that this case has taken so long to come out I don't believe John Jones will get the full four-year suspension. I'm very intrigued and interested to see 
what he ultimately ends up getting. It's very hard for me to believe that they could give him anything less than two years because for the first one, they suspended him. The first violation, they suspended him saying that he did not intentionally know he was taking a steroid or um, a prohibited substance, but because of his lack of, you know, just being aware, his uh, carelessness in not checking to see what he was taking was val valid or not, was something that he could use, they still gave him a year just to prove a point and say, look, you should be checking these things. You should be making sure what you're putting in your body is correct for you and that there's nothing prohibited in those substances. So if that's the case, it's really hard for me to believe that in this case, there would be a batch in his, there would be a batch of uh, supplements that he used in which it was tainted. They would go out there individually, test that out for themselves, and that they're going to find that that batch was also, that that was also tainted in some of these other drugs that are just coming off the shelf. Um, so it's really hard for me to believe that. Because of that, I do think that John Jones will get suspended. I'm just not sure for how long. But the key thing to take from this is that even though Jeff Nowitzki says that this is his opinion, you do have to keep in mind that he also that it really truly doesn't matter what he says because again he will not ultimately decide Jones's punishment. USADA will do that. So it's very it's very I would say it's positive news that Jeff is even saying anything positive about this. So that leads you to believe that it's not going to be a full four year or suspension or maybe even three year. But I still wouldn't get my hopes up for having John Jones back before two years. And with that, his 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 image is going to be very much damaged from a second violation from a two-year ban. I think it's going to be very difficult for people at this point in time to say, I truly believe John Jones is clean. I truly believe that he is one of the few people in the history of drugs and, anti and doping to... Uh, you know, have failed a test twice and it be unintentional. I just find that very hard to believe. But we'll see what happens. It was interesting that Jeff even came out and said this. I thought it was a little bit, I, I just wasn't sure how to feel about it. I wasn't sure why he was even giving his opinion on if he thought that it was intentional or not. Um, at first, I thought it was a little bit weird a little bit suspect considering that he does get paid by the UFC. Was he trying to lobby in the media this way? But I think at the end of the day, he actually was, when I did go back and listen to the interview, he actually was being pretty genuine. He was just saying, like, it just would be, in the, it, you know, it would lead him to believe that it wasn't intentional. But at the end of the day, he truly doesn't know. So it's good information to have heard. Also, let me just recommend this, guys. If you are very much not understanding what USADA is, how it works, what the whole thing is about, I would definitely recommend going to the Joe Rogan podcast and listening to Jeff Nowitzki talk on there. He's got very interesting things to say. Um, it will help you understand a lot better how this testing is implemented, how strenuous this is on the athletes to really talk about how much of a burden this is with fighters having to be woken up at 5.30 a.m. in the morning. You know, Holly Holm was tested nine times, I believe, for uh, the, her Chris Cyborg fight. Has been tested 36 times since the exception, uh, inception of um, USADA in the UFC. It's very impressive information. It, it definitely will, will show you a lot of what the athletes have to deal with with this drug testing program. But I will also show you how intensive this drug testing program is for the UFC and how, in my opinion, it's absolutely the best drug testing program out there in any major sport, baseball, football, basketball, anything. This does nothing compares to the UFC's drug testing, in my opinion. Um, but again, if you're if you're unfamiliar with USADA or how it works or just confused, Please go listen to that podcast. It's very informational on that sense. All right. So next thing that Jeff Nowitzki talks about is that um, 
Nick Diaz, it looks like they still are um, investigating his situation with USADA, that it, it was a whereabouts uh, violation. So basically, Nick Diaz was in violation of the whereabouts policy for USADA. This is where you have to let USADA know where you're going to be basically at all times, 365, 24-7. Um, you have to be able to let them know where you're at so that they can drug test you. So Nick failed this three times. So basically you get three chances and then after that you get flagged for a USADA violation. So Nick three times was unable to be reached by USADA because he did not properly uh, inform them of where he was. It doesn't mean that he was absolutely trying to avoid being tested. That does, That's not what this means, right? So apparently, you know, according to Jeff Nowitzki, he was saying the unfortunate thing here, there is, is look, the whereabouts failures are here to catch people that are cheating and trying to avoid testing. In his opinion, he thought Nick's lifestyle is what led those three whereabouts, not that he was trying to avoid testing. And, and then he said that they're trying to work through that. To me, this is a, a good um, a good sign of things. And apparently to from a USADA spokesman named Brad Horn, he said, quote, pending the resolution of his case at this, as the matter is still pending, um, that he's still under provisional suspension pending the resolution of his case as the matter is still pending. The UFC did announce the suspension in June. An athlete who failed to report the whereabouts three times within a 12-month period faced a suspension between six months and two years. So that's what's going on with Nick Diaz. Um, I do believe that this is exactly what happened here, that Nick Diaz is just has this lifestyle where he's not really caring about what's going on. He just wants to live his life. He's not really going to be the type to be like, oh, I got to check in with USADA, especially in a time where it doesn't appear that he's very hungry to fight anytime soon. He's very much content living the life the way he wants to. He made a lot of money in that Nick Diaz-George St. Pierre matchup and has made a lot of money throughout his career, especially later in his career, and then also made a pretty good amount of money with that Anderson Silva fight as well. So I think that he only wants to come back for money as well. Um, I don't think that you're going to see a long-term suspension for Diaz in this case, again, because I do think it's true that he, and, and apparently, according to Nowitzki, he was running with some people, and, and some of those guys that he runs with were actually supposed to be in charge of, of his whereabouts, so they would be the ones filling that out and informing USADA of where Nick was going to be, apparently, they weren't doing a good enough job of that either. So that's why the three failures happened. So I would be surprised if this was any more than a year. I, I honestly think it should be no more than six months suspension, which means that it would almost already be up. So if that's the case, no big deal here. But the key thing here was that Jeff Nowitzki did say, he said, quote, I think he does want to fight. I think he does. I've sat down with him over the past couple months trying to resolve this whereabouts issue. So I think that's very key right there. Uh, I believe Dana has said that he doesn't think Nick wants to fight, but I do believe that Nick Diaz does want to fight. I know that's that's been a question that's been asked for a while. I think that Nick is just waiting for the right opportunity for the, the money to make sense, for the matchup to make sense. He really wants to feel that fire come back in him. I, I, I don't know. He's one of these guys that says that he doesn't enjoy fighting, but I do believe that he will fight for the money, um, for the right matchup, and for something that truly actually matters to him. So if something does come along, do look to see Nick Diaz um, fighting. I do predict that Nick won't be fighting, though, until the end of 2018, beginning of 2019. I don't believe he's in any rush. But just wanted to update y'all on that because I don't believe that this is going to turn into a two-year ban for USADA because of his whereabouts issue. I do believe that there's some good signs here, especially in just this Jeff Nowitzki 
interview that he was willing to give on that topic as well. <laughs> Alright, so uh, last thing I wanted to really touch on was Kevin Lee versus Justin Gaethje. That being a potential matchup. Justin Gaethje on the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani talked about the fact that he wanted to fight Kevin Lee next. And uh, Ariel asked him why, and he said that he just wanted to punch a loud mouth. He likes punching loud mouths in the face. So that was pretty funny. He was saying it pretty lightly. Apparently, he when he met Justin, when he met Kevin Lee, he was very cordial with him. They had a, a nice uh, back and forth conversation. But then what really kind of uh, upset Justin Gaethje a little bit is that Kevin Lee said that he was kissing up to him basically and like, you know, just, you know, falling all over the place for Kevin Lee and like he he was kind of looking up to him, that, that sort of thing, right? And because of that, Justin kind of lost the respect for him. So he, he would like to fight Lee next. Uh, Kevin Lee came out and said that he and basically indicated that he would be happy to oblige, but he doesn't plan on rushing back to make that fight happen, which is a bit interesting. Lee said afterwards that he planned to take some time off, and, you know, some of that appears to be because of the co the fact that his coach, Robert Fallis, um, you know, unfortunately uh, passed away due to his, him committing suicide, right? So it looks like he was also indicating that he's got some serious, significant career changes that he's going to be coming up with. You know, he indicated, you know, he, he stated that he's still pretty much young in the game. He's got a lot longer. Uh, he's got a long career ahead of him that he's making some changes to his camp, also to his new management team as well. So that he's not very much interested in taking this fight next you know, right away, but he is very much interested in taking it at the right time. Also said, quote, if it's going to be against Justin, I like easy money, unquote. So he does feel very confident in it. I think that this could be a very much, uh, a very fun little rivalry and lead up to the fight. Justin's not the biggest, um, you know, shit talker in the game, but he does a good job of, you know, having his own little uh, moments, his own little liners here and there and then kevin lee of course will bring it um as far as it comes to the promotion also i really like this matchup i think it'd be very interesting to see how kevin lee continues to progress with his uh with his fighting style if he's able to implement some more of that wrestling against justin gaethje who's very good with his takedown defense himself and also how kevin would deal with having to face a guy like justin gaethje who just comes forward and really throw some heavy, heavy strikes and does a good job of landing as well. And to see if Kevin is able to really take advantage and, and see how his striking matches up with Justin Gaethje. Because even though Kevin has made leaps and bounds in his in the, the sport of mixed martial arts and his fighting style, I do believe he still has some improving when it comes to stand-up. And, uh, you know, against Tony Ferguson, I felt like he was getting a little bit um, a little bit worse of the exchanges uh, for sure. And then um, also in the Kiesa fight, he did he did OK. I mean, he did fine. He's, he's got good striking. It just isn't phenomenal striking at this point, in my opinion, just yet. But I do think he has the potential for that. Um, but I like the fact that Lee wants to wait a little bit of time. You know, he even indicated that it seems like it's a good matchup, but he's looking out for Justin's health here, and he needs some time to. Obviously, it's a little bit of a backhanded uh, comment there. Um, he's taken a little bit of a shot at Justin for the punishment he took in the Eddie Alvarez and Michael Johnson fight, but I do think that this is correct. I don't think that this fight should happen for a while. I think Justin needs to take a little bit of a break. I believe UFC President Dana White indicated that he wants Justin to take a little bit of a break. I think that is very smart thinking with Dana because I think he sees a very popular fighter that could be in this game with a lot of interesting matchups and potentially a title run at some point in the UFC. But he doesn't want to have this fighter become shopworn very quickly. He wants to give his himself the opportunity he wants to give Justin an opportunity to re really recover, 
And I think Kevin Lee, this is smart for him because unfortunately due to the passing of his coach, he is going to have to make some major changes. And with in, in having that and with that being the case, I think it would be really intriguing to see this matchup be on a card somewhere in June or July, maybe that July 4th weekend card. That could be a really nice co-main event or feature bout on the main card with uh, Justin Gaethje and Kevin Lee. It would have a lot of intrigue. It would give Kevin Lee a good amount of time to have recovered from that staff infection, from that loss from T Tony Ferguson, um, and to really get better at the things that he has uh, built to work on, as well as for Justin, obviously for him to go back and really – rethink a little bit of how he could tweak his fighting to where he can avoid getting defeated by a guy like Eddie Alvarez, um, but also for his brain to recover because he went through two absolute wars, two fights that were up for fight of the year in many, many like of the MMA websites and shows. So he definitely needs to take some time off in that realm as well. So definitely would love to see that, but Hopefully, we do wait for it for a while. I think that would be good for both of the fighters. Um, just a couple other things just to make note of, and then we'll get out of here. Nothing uh, too flashy. Looks like James Vick will fight Francisco Trinaldo in Austin, Texas. It looks like um, this comes a little bit late, but I know Vick was really trying to get on the card. He was a little bit upset that he got passed up for the main event um, for that Austin card. Unfortunately for Vic, I kind of agree with the UFC. I don't believe that he himself is big enough to main event the card. Maybe a co-main event feature bout would be nice. But um, did want him to fight someone that was a little bit, you know, maybe up higher in the ranks for the UFC lightweight division. But it's just such a deep division at this point. It, it really is difficult for you to advance in those divisions. John Dodson is going to be fighting Pedro Munoz at UFC Bellum in Brazil on February 3rd. So it'll be good to see John Dodson return. Pedro Munoz is also a very interesting fight for John Dodson. I think these are two really good fighters who don't know exactly where they are in their, um, in their, um, in this division at the Bantamweight division. For Munoz, this will be his fifth appearance. His fifth time in nine UFC appearances that he f has fought in Brazil. So he's going back down there. Uh, Munoz has won four straight wins with three coming by way of guillotine. And uh, one of those wins was against Rob Font in October. So that should actually be a very interesting fight. Um, another nice fight added to that card in which uh, Leota Machida faced Eric, faces Eric Andrews for the in the middleweight division for uh, at UFC Fight Night 125. So that should be another good bantamweight fight right there and very intriguing. And then the other news that came out, just wanted to touch on this real quick. Robbie Lawler, we, I just got to give it up to the guy. He suffered a torn ACL and meniscus in his decision loss to Rafael Dos Anjos. I mean, what a warrior this guy is. Uh, Dana White talked about he tore his ACL and meniscus, and then he goes on to say, and every other thing in his knee in the third round, and he continued to fight. So I just want to give a, a huge, you know, props to Robbie. I don't know if that's the smartest thing to do is to keep continue fighting on that. But, you know, guys, these guys, these, these athletes really put their bod bodies through um, these rigorous, uh, rigorous training, really tough conditioning. And sometimes it breaks on them. And for them to find a way to continue to fight for an opportunity to fight for a title, to continue to push through the pain, to continue to compete in what is literally a fight, not just an athletic competition, but literally a fight, right? They're not trying to throw a football the way that Carson Wentz threw a touchdown after he tore his ACL, right? This guy is fighting someone who is known for landing nasty leg kicks, right? to a knee that could potentially have an ACL tear and a meniscus tear to someone who's trying to take your head off. That is their job. That's what they get paid to do is to headhunt and to finish you and to destroy you, right? That's just incredible uh, that Robbie Lawler was able to fight on that with two rounds more. 
Um, again, I don't know if it's the smartest thing. Hopefully, he's able to recover um, pretty soon. He's a little bit older, so you have to wonder, with Robbie being 35 years old already, possibly being out for a year, year and a half, by the time he comes back, he'll be about 36, 37. What, will he look, what would he look like at that point in time? We may have seen Robbie Lawler's um, day, you know, best days behind him, but just want to go out there and say, I mean, how much tougher can you get than a Robbie Lawler? Some A guy who was going to be a major superstar when he was young, about 22 years old, going in to face Nate, Nick Diaz, who had a loss. Um, he kind of lost his way a little bit here and there. He had his his ups and downs, uh, kind of like a Michael Bisping type career. And then he was able to, you know, become champion, get to the pinnacle of the sport and really um, cement his legacy. But these, I think this is, I think what ultimately his legacy will be. Do you remember how gritty Robbie Lawler was? He would bite down on his mouthpiece and go to war in that fifth round after he had been through hell and back in the first four. Do you remember that time he tore his ACL meniscus? He still lost, but he still fought on for two more rounds. Absolutely incredible. I think it's a, um, it's just a testament to these guys' wills, to their mindsets, and to what they put on the line out there to um, let us fans and the media really enjoy the sport and really showcase their talent. So kudos to Robbie Lawler. Kudos for... Um, finishing that fight without getting finished, especially with an injury like that. Um, it did not look good. I remember thinking, man, that knee is very much torn up, and now we definitely know why. So, all right, guys, so that's all I have for you today. Um, if you'd like to give me a follow on Twitter, you can do so at Zapata MMA on Twitter. Again, that's at Zapata MMA. Let me know what you thought about any of my opinions on the topics at hand on this podcast. Uh, let me know if you'd like to touch on anything, got any questions, or if you have anything else that is on your mind. Until then, have a good one. I'll see you all next time, guys.